The Get This Podcast is brought to you by ProPhotoGo.com, professional photography on demand. Use coupon code GETTHIS to get 10% off your professional photo session. So whether you need new headshots or you have a big event coming up, an engagement, a wedding, you name it, or let's say you just want new photos so you can look snazzy on social media, ProPhotoGo is professional photography on demand. Use coupon code GETTHIS and get 10% off. Go to ProPhotoGo.com. The Get This Podcast is also brought to you by WP Engine, the best WordPress hosting available. People who know me know I build enterprise-level WordPress websites that reach millions of people a year. And it's important that those sites live at a host that is secure, fast, and offers the kind of support you need. 24-7, and I can't recommend WP Engine enough. I use them exclusively and recommend them to all of my clients. Get 10% off your first year of exceptional hosting for your WordPress website. Go to getthispodcast.com slash WordPress, and that will trigger the 10% off coupon. Again, it's getthispodcast.com slash WordPress. This is Kevin Kautzman with the podcast, Get This. It's the show about things people love. And it is June 6th, 2019, D-Day, as my, my good friend Barry Doran uh, reminded me. I think I think I was following it a little bit on Twitter, but good to be reminded. And uh, uh, we're joined by, again, frequent guest of the podcast, <laughs> sometimes co-host, effectively, uh, Jose Ignacio Gomez. Barry, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Kevin. All right. Thanks for coming on, Jose. The one and only. <laughs> <laughs> that's, his, that's his start. And uh, Barry's a buddy of ours. Uh, we know from from around the neighborhood. And uh, we always you know, enjoy hanging out with him at our favorite little local haunt, Kismet, the strangest bar above 96th Street. <laughs> Probably below, but we love it. And... Uh, Barry always has great stories, and, and again, this is the the podcast about things people love. Uh, so I thought we'd talk about old New York, which is uh, apropos Eisenhower era New York, because again, it's D Day, which you reminded me, Barry. Right, right. Well, I did grow up. But my favorite time was in the fifties, post Korean War, when Eisenhower was the president. And of course, I was a teenager in love every other day, and life was wonderful, girls and baseball, and uh, not too many pressures financially or anything like that. So it was relatively a good time of life, I think, for me, for my uh, my buddies, and uh, worries were very, very little, and uh, it was nice. It was really a pleasant time of of my life. Were you, were you in love with the same girl every other day? Oh, or was it, every it was other a new day. girl? I mean, it's not, it's a song. <laughs> I just love, I just love being in love. And every other day you'd find some crush on someone else and you'd be a little heartsick puppy, you know, but uh, there were studies, there were studies where you, uh, 
it got mixed up with girls and baseball and uh, everything was of equal import at that time. <laughs> and you're a lifelong New Yorker. Here I am New that. York. I am that. I, uh, I was born on 145th Street and grew up on 157th Street, Broadway, Riverside Drive, and uh, kind of near the Hudson River where we had baseball fields, so we played baseball instead of being inner city where you had to play softball because it was only the schoolyard that you were near and you couldn't, you couldn't bang baseballs around in the schoolyard <laughs> too much. And uh, it was interesting because the neighborhood, the neighborhood was full of characters. We had Tiny Tim living a few blocks away. <laughs> Maria Callas, the famous opera wow. singer, was on yeah. 63rd Street. Uh, Michael Kidd lived in my building. His name, Michael Kidd, was a choreographer for uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And he was uh, Michael Greenwald. His brother was also the uh, PR director of the Concord Hotel in the Catskills. Was, at that time, it was one of the biggest, biggest venues for, for uh, actors and comics. Hmm. And uh, yeah. every now and then I would bump into somebody in my building that uh, Phil Greenwald would bring in. So it was interesting. Got a lot of vicarious pleasure with doing things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what what period are we in right now? Are we in like the late 40s? The late the 40s, 50s? early 50s. Yeah. Apropos today, I was seven years old. The day, of course, hmm. I didn't appreciate the import of it being seven. And uh, you were always told that's a war across the ocean. It really doesn't affect us. Little did I know. You know what Whoa. That, yeah, yeah. It was sort of a shelter time for us in that way. That that surprises me a little bit. I yeah. would have thought uh, that there might have been more, not hysteria, but intensity. Maybe they were probably trying to protect you. Well, sure. In 45, 44, 45, uh, we, were not, we were not getting uh, intense. We would go to the movies on Saturday. We had no TV. We grew up with, we were radio kids. Hmm. And Saturday was a double feature at the local theater. And of course, the, uh, the news was always on. And the news was always seeing some invasion forces going into Germany or England or something like that. And that was my extent of World War II at that period. Mm. So, uh, so it was confined mainly to Saturday afternoon between, <laughs> between features. Boy, it sounds like you, you slotted right in there uh, and kind of maybe obviously avoided the worst of that in, in terms of service. You were too, you know, obviously too young. And then oh, yeah. Korea as well. Korea, uh, yeah. Korea, yeah. I was too young for Korea. And of course, I, uh, during the, my, I, had a, I had my firstborn when I was 20, 21. So All right. that plus being a science teacher... At that time, it was the era of Sputnik, and America woke, woke up to the, the news that, holy crap, you know, we're, we're a little behind in science and math. Right. So there was a deferment for math and science teachers uh -oh. at that time, uh -oh. aside from everything else. Huh. They wanted us in the classroom to uh, sort of catch up with the Sputnik one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to race the yeah. Russians to the moon, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, and so when did you know you wanted to be a teacher? Where does that come from? Uh, actually, most of my friends, we all floundered around. My, my uncle was a chairman of chemistry uh, at, uh, in Brooklyn Tech, and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. We were, we were kind of mixed up kids. After high school, I, 
couple of my friends became used car salesmen. <laughs> and I said, hey, that sounds good. And I muddled my way through college. I went to CCNY when it was a, a good school back in the 50s. Right. I have to qualify. I hope I'm not sounding too, uh, you know, dramatic. But uh, it was, and again, I was, I was a biology major. I did, started off in Baruch, which was the, the business end of City College. Mm-hmm. And realized very quickly I didn't want to be an accountant. <laughs> so, but backed into it, I guess my uh, my uncle, hey, listen, you know, you like kids, you this, you that. It's not an eight, you're off half a year if you want to be. You know, at that point, I didn't have much responsibility. And uh, I did that, went to school, worked at Medical Center at the Columbia Presbyterian for a while. I worked in the mailroom. We made $32.50 a week <laughs> and worked a half a day extra on Saturday. And it's funny, when I go there now and I have to pay a $30 deductible to the doctor, Just to I see keep the telling doctor. people that was my week's salary. And they look and go, what, what the heck? You know? <laughs> it was like, is this, is this guy off his meds? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, but you know, everything else was in proportion, you know? <laughs> right, still right. had beer, still had beer money. So it was, it was an interesting time. Coffee was the nickel, yeah. right? Uh, coffee was a nickel. I remember coffee. I was not a coffee drinker until about ten cents a cup. My mom, <laughs> my mom liked coffee. We would go to uh, there were no McDonald's or things like that. Or there was the local local uh, coffee shops, and they were a nickel, nickel cup of coffee. <laughs> I never liked the taste of it at first. I said it, something smells so good and tastes so bad. I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to average like six cups of coffee a day oh, back man. in the day when I was in college. Jeez, I'm waking two. up after and, and a cigarette, of course. Ooh, right, right, because <laughs> oh, you're oh, yeah, yeah, you're living this bohemian fantasy, right? You're something like that. After. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. you just drink coffee all day. That's that's yeah, what yeah. it is. But but you we get small cups, no? Uh, it's not like here you get a venti and you know, all the kind of things. No. <laughs> Venti. Yeah. Venti makes me want a venti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a two pot a day kind of guy but a lot of times. I should probably cut back. It might explain the headaches. <laughs> <laughs> but wait a second. What, I was curious. Like, What position you like playing on baseball? Yeah. Uh, I was an infielder, second shortstop. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, it's amazing when I think about it today. <laughs> I look at the ball field. Today I'm 82, and I, I'm thinking how I ever made a throw from deep shortstop to first base. It looks, it looks like today I'd reach in on three bounces. <laughs> yeah, I know. Times, the times are changing, man. Mm-hmm. Well, you just, you know, you look at the other guy and throw, right? Yeah, well, that's right. I reached him without a bounce. <laughs> It's a great sport. I love baseball. Yeah. And a little more about Maria Cala. That that was your neighbor. She, she lived neighbor? in the neighborhood. She okay. lived in Maria Callas Lived on a, I think, a hundred sixty third street. Uh, Tiny Tim lived on a hundred sixty third street, between Fort Washington Avenue mm-hmm. and, uh, I think Riverside. Now, Jose, do you know who Tiny Tim is? Tiny Tim, maybe not. It's, he <laughs> had a well. I'll let Barry. Well, uh, Tiny Tim. I don't know if you ever hear me play Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Right now, With that yeah. falsetto voice that, that I played for uh, Kelsey. Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, and I never heard you doing that. That's good it's radio. Okay you didn't, it's okay you didn't. That's because, good radio. But, but he, was a, he was a character back in those days. This was no put on. He would walk down Broadway in the 60s with his mother. 
He had the long hair, the weird look. Yeah, and, the little uh, ukulele. And the uke. a ukulele. Yeah. He played, he played a, a couple of places in the village. And uh, normal he was as far as being an avid uh, Brooklyn Dodger fan. That was his <laughs> love. Right. He loved the Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, they could do no wrong. But he was a character. Hmm. And, uh, For some reason, I situate him later in time in my mind. I don't think of him as being a part well, of that era. No, Herb, Herb Corey would... Well, he probably, you know... I just knew he he, yeah. he looked different. I mean, in the yeah. 40s, 50s, he would walk down the street. And huh. I, did, I mean, I didn't know yeah. him. Didn't know that he uh, performed in the village. It may have been a little later on. Yeah, real eccentric. Like a yeah. real New York character. Yeah, he got married on the Johnny Carson show to Miss Vicky or something. It was a big elaborate thing that, that lasted about three and a half minutes, but it was it was an interesting, interesting mix. There's probably famous clips if you look at the Johnny Carson show with the Tiny Tim and Miss Vicky. They married on stage. <laughs> so, I love that Johnny Carson is one of the things, obviously there's a lot of stuff that bridge uh, bridges the, the sort of get generational gap for, right, for, right. for us, you know, for, the, for all of us. But Johnny Carson, I just have some great memories Unbelievable. of just staying up late, yeah. always feeling like it was a treat. But yeah. just my early childhood was right at, right when he was, yeah. you know, on the way out. We, uh, when we first got a TV in 1951, as a matter of fact, I came home to my 10-inch RCA, Victor, trying to fix the damn rabbit ears so he, you wouldn't have 16 images on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and I got home, I got home in the seventh inning of the Giant Dodger game when Bobby Thompson hit this home run hurt around the world. And I... One of the things I could say, in all honesty, I, I saw it on TV. Tremendous. So it was uh, Russ Hodges screaming, "The Dodge, the Giants win the pennant." The Giants win the Giants pennant. Win the pennant. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, what year was that? Do you remember? That was 1951. 1951. 1951. Huh? And uh, of course, early TV was uh, was called Open House. I think that was with Jerry Lester, and he had this voluptuous Dagmar on. Dagmar was his. <laughs> Blonde with like a 44-inch chest. And when you're a 12-year-old, you see, even on a 10-inch screen, the thing sort of enveloped the whole screen. 3D. <laughs> it's all happening. And that was, that was the beginning of late-night TV. And after that, I'm trying to remember Steve Allen, uh, Jack Parr. And uh, I think Carson, but Carson to me too was uh, just the, he was he was the quintessential just uh, the goat. Oh god, yeah, he was fantastic. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, there's some good stories about Carson too. They were playboys. I mean, they were yeah, they oh, were, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, raising cane for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that's really that's really good stuff. What what year did the the trolley Dodgers leave New York? What year did they stab you in the back? Well, I was not a Dodger fan. We grew up. I grew up in in, in uh, uh, ten minutes walk to the Polo Grounds, which I think I explained to you guys. That's where the Polo Ground houses are now mm. on the Manhattan side, and uh, Yankee Stadium, of course, was across the viaduct at the uh, in the Bronx. Mm. And uh, the Dodgers were the Dodgers; they were a Brooklyn enemy, you know. That was it was, <laughs> and I don't know where it all came from, but there was a great there was a great. Uh, you know, them against us kind of thing. Both blue-collar teams. You went to the Polo Grounds. Uh, very rarely did I go to Ebbets Field. It was a long trip to Brooklyn and uh, no need to go. But you would go to the Polo Grounds and you could wear sneakers and jeans. 
Hmm. And when you went to Yankee Stadium, for some reason, you felt you had to put on chinos or something other than jeans because it was a little more of a gentleman. You had to dress yeah. up. It was right. yeah, yeah, Joe DiMaggio plays there, you know, so you had to dress up. <laughs> right. You know, it was a little little more than a blue collar kind of uh, ah, interesting. interesting to me. I mean, that's still their brand. They have that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think they have very strict rules about tats, uh, yeah, hair, yeah, the all hair, the rest yeah. of it. It's a very particular the pinstripes, kind of thing. The pinstripes are very cool, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very cool because it makes the strike zone bigger. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> when you're pitching. <laughs> they, need to, they need to be well-dressed wherever they go. Yeah, if you watch yeah. uh, baseball, you're going to mm-hmm. notice, especially when, when they play, well, it, it, it almost doesn't matter, but when they play the Red Sox, the Red Sox have a very particular look. Mm-hmm. A lot of facial hair. You can't have facial hair as a Yankee, if I'm not mistaken. I think they, have they, they may have let it go a little bit, but yeah. there, it, was a, it was a very hard and fast rule at one time. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're a lifelong Yankees guy? Not really, you know... We, I, I like players. For some reason, we liked the Giants because they were the blue-collar team. You know, right. The National League was, you know, when I grew up, it was very simple. You had eight teams in the National League, eight teams in the American League. Many, many day games, much of it listening on the radio, yeah. where they would, you know, fake the sound of a ball being hit, you know. And, and, yeah, and, and we would, you know, we would listen uh, semi-intently. Most of the time, we wanted to go out and play a ball. A lot of this was day day games, you know. And yeah, they uh, used to play so many more day. I mean, obviously, yeah, right? I mean, and the... as a you know, as the sponsorship grew and the TV grew and the, the leagues grew, I mean, I remember guys making making eight ten thousand dollars a year and having to go home in the in the winter and work in their factories or farms to to make to make ends meet. And I heard stories about guys making money and. Uh, you know, there was no airplane travel. I think the farthest, yeah, was, farthest west you went in those days was St. Louis. The Cardinals and the St. Louis Browns, which became the Baltimore Orioles. Hmm. And guys would go on the train, spend nights on the train. What are they doing? They're drinking and betting, betting their salary. So some guy would come home with maybe 20000 and the other guy lost everything, oh. <laughs> you know, during a 154-game season. So <laughs> You hear these amazing stories about crazy. those old times. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Yeah. 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 It's do you, do you think there's there's still characters like that right now in this moment and that you see around or remind you of, of that kind of people? Uh, those, you talking about I, Tiny I, Tim? You know, I think a guy sitting on a bench today, just getting up to the majors. I had a nephew that uh, he was in, he was pitching double A ball uh, for uh, he was up in Oneonta, I think for the Detroit Tigers, and I was just hoping they would give him one look see. Because if he got to the majors just for a day, I think they had to pay you something like over five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, just you're on the major league team for the day, and uh, I think I'm right about that. But uh, it's not the same thing. These guys were hungry. Mm-hmm. These guys would play for the World Series when they would make four, maybe. Again, I, I I may be wrong with the dollar amount, but if you won the World Series back in the fifties or something, got an extra four thousand bucks or something, mm-hmm. that was a lot of money. I mean, yeah. I don't think that I don't. I don't remember Mantle making seventy-five thousand. DiMaggio, I think they finally gave a hundred thousand dollars to. I mean, these were great ball players, Ted Williams, oh, yeah, and truly, you know, and uh, uh, it was a, it's a whole different thing now. Yeah, I I I, I like individual players now, mm. mostly those that seem to be humble. Uh-huh. And, you know, so I don't get crazy with any of the sports. I enjoy watching. But I, 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 it's not do or die for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So I, I looked it up, and it's uh, the Dodgers left in 1957. Mm-hmm. They left. Uh, mm-hmm. to, that was a big one. Yeah. Yeah. There were people in Brooklyn that were really, really upset because they, it took them by surprise. And uh, I think O'Malley had, I, I think as I said to you, I, I have a theory that he also got Stoneham, who owned the Giants, figuring if he's going to go all the way out to California, better bring another National League team out there. And the Giants, the Giants were getting. I, we used to, when I was in junior high school, we could sneak into the polo grounds. We would play hooky, and and you could jump over Edgecombe. There, there was a way of going down Edgecombe Park, and you get right on the roof of the polo grounds. And there were more there were more vendors than there were people in the stands. So uh-huh. I mean, it was it was it was a losing proposition, as I recall. And uh, I think Stoneham, the uh, the Giant management, had had more reason to get out of the polo grounds than. Uh, O'Malley and the Dodgers had to get out of Brooklyn because they had a they had a tremendous fan base there. Imagine had they stayed. Where where are the Polo Grounds? You the Polo said? Grounds on 155th Street. Yeah. Uh, when you walk down Broadway, you go across all the way to Edgecombe Avenue, and you start going across the viaduct as if you're walking to the Bronx. Uh huh. Yeah. I think yeah. you and Jose did that. A sure. Weeks yeah, ago. I've done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look to the left, there's a bunch of big red houses on the viaduct while you're going across the the river. If on the left side is the polo ground housing, and that's that's where they were, and somewhere in there, I think I told you, home plate from the polo grounds is still in the ground there. They have a they have a a marking where the home plate was. Oh, that'd be a fun ground. thing to yeah, go and see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, lot of, a lot of good New York stories. Well, they say yeah, some yeah. of them, you know, it's kind of nice to, in a way, grow up with some of them. In another way, I'm getting too damn old. <laughs> I'd rather it be somebody telling me those stories instead of me telling you. I feel you. It, it was pretty funny to have you come around and be like, it's, oh, it's D-Day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah, it is. I, I didn't land. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. You were, uh, yeah, you dodged that. Yeah. Fascinating. What do you think, that, do you, what do you miss the most from the old New York feeling of the city? The quiet. There was more quiet. It was more, uh, I think in the last last few years, maybe a decade or so, it's gotten so packed, it's gotten so crowded with vehicles and, and people. I mean, it wasn't, it's not even a gradual, it, to me it wasn't even a gradual kind of growth. It just seemed like everybody got dumped in two or three years. It just seemed like the population, you can't walk down a street today without bumping into 20 people, without them reading their, you know, their uh, phones. You get on the subway now at 11 o'clock in the morning, and it's standing room. You come home on the subway at 11 o'clock at night, and it's standing room. And we never had stuff like that. I mean, we were kids, and uh, you took the bus. The bus made time. Even the bus, even the bus went faster than seven miles an hour. And, but uh, it was just a quieter time, and... Uh, You know, maybe, maybe I, I, the pressure you feel getting older and having to make a living, I suppose. And, but uh, you say all New York, I kind of think of the 50s and 60s. The 40s, I was still kind of like, you know, home with mom and dad and, uh, you know, that leave it a beaver kind of thing. It was kind of nice. I mean, we didn't have the picket fence and, the, you know, but we had a nice apartment. I had great friends on River Street. We had great buddies. Uh, like I talked to my younger brother; he's five years my uh, junior, and he says I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade our childhood, that aspect of it, you know, for the friends we had, and and what we did for anything else. 
I mean, you know, it's of course you know what you had. You know, you know, you don't, you don't stick your head up and look around because uh, sometimes you get it cut off, and uh, you know. <laughs> so it's, I, I learned to stay within my within my confines, and it was fine. It was fine. Mm. New York, nineteen fifties, and then the sixties. Did it? Uh, did things really start to change in you the sixties? You know, 60s? I had I had a boy. I had my oldest boy who passed away in. Uh, oh yeah, I'm in sorry 19, about that. Uh, 92 he was 38 and mark was born in, mark was born in 59 so in the 60s i started uh, i was teaching i was in a junior high and high school uh i was making 4800 a year i think then and then the union the union came in in 1962 the uft the united federation of teachers and they got us across the board raise. We got 5200 a year. Oh, and you're so, living so large. I came, I came home to my wife and I said, I'm a three-figure man now. You know, <laughs> anything, any, any kind of furs you need, man. <laughs> Getting a big, big hundred a week now, man. So. <laughs> but again, you know, I, I bartended. I mean, I, I had to work. I supplemented that. Uh, but we didn't, you know, we didn't struggle. I, as far as, we had two frigidaires in the house. My wife was one wow. of these... Uh, oh. She had, you know, we shopped right here on 187th Street, mm -hmm. where Frankie's Market is now. It used to be a nice market, butcher shop, and uh, you'd, you'd come all the way uh, up no, here. No, no, you lived. I was living on 187th at this is point. It, is it properly called Hudson Heights? You call it Hudson it, Heights. They, they put the Hudson Heights spin on it because of realty. I was going to say, I yeah, thought so. I, 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 whenever I people up, come along, I say it's Washington I, Heights. I right? grew up on on 157th Street, right north of the Trinity Cemetery. And they used to call it Fringe Harlem, you know. Every everybody had a or North Harlem, and and, and then Washington Heights started getting this bad connotation of drug. So somebody put a spin on Hudson Heights, which of course it gets you another hundred thousand dollars on the marketplace. You know, <laughs> Not the BS, you know? yeah, yeah, so, right, right, right. East Williamsburg, no, you know, you're in Bushwick. You can't, <laughs> yeah, you can't change it. But uh, I think that was all a realty ploy. Yeah, what uh, year did you come up to the Heights here then? I came up here, I came up here in 19... Now, well, we used to play ball at 187. We were kids from 157th Street. It was a winter basketball league up there. And we came up and played... Uh, we played basketball in the, in the uh, night center, which started about, I think, 7 o'clock. And there was like seven or eight teams. Most of the kids were from this area. So right away, we were like the, you know, we were the outsiders in a sense. But we did pretty well, and... Uh, so when I came up here, I'm looking around at like your building, six. Oh wow, this is beautiful. <laughs> you know, we never came up this far. You know, and uh, uh, you went two blocks out of your way in the city. You were in a different zone. Mm. Around the corner, we played baseball. Around the corner, literally around the corner on 156th Street, they were playing roller hockey. There mm. was the day they just and they kicked our butts. I mean, we couldn't fly. I couldn't get on. I couldn't walk, let alone get on roller skates. But we could beat them in baseball. But they would beat us like 19 to nothing in hockey. You know? <laughs> and I think I need that Geico commercial where they put the walrus in the, in, in, in a goalie In goal and he just yeah. sits there. <laughs> and then maybe we would have had a chance. But uh, I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. A lot of roller hockey in the city. Yeah, really? A lot of roller That's hockey. That's the I'm last 70. thing I would have thought. Yeah. Huh. Streets were closed off. They had play streets gotcha. in, in the... Uh, I think I'm on 173rd, near, near 174th, between Broadway and St. Nick. Street was closed off as a play street on the weekend. Try to imagine and, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, 
but you know, traffic was less too, and uh, you know, things again. There was a there was a quiet to the to the whole nonsense. You know, there's still a little little bit of that up here. Yet. Yeah, there's yeah. still some of that up in yeah, the Heights, I believe but, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, increasingly difficult to it find. It is. It is. It I feels mean, like the the drilling tends to start no matter where you are at, at eight o'clock on Monday morning, uh, and it's oh, never God, clear I, what I, they do. <laughs> like, what are they actually doing? Jack, when I came up here and I had a car. I could pull up in any place and park any time of the day and night. And in the summertime, the summertime, many of the people from here would go up to the mountains or go away. Yeah. And the streets were literally empty. You can believe no curbs, no no, no cars on park. And and, uh, today... Well, you know what goes on. They're, 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 they're in their cars at five minutes after the truck goes out. Yeah. People work from home. Yep. They don't have to move their car except once a week now. Sure. When I came up here, you had to move the car Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. You see people playing that game, too, where oh, they have the car, and they have it parked, and they've got a Tuesday spot. So right. they're out there, and then they sit in their car for an hour a- or two and play this parking game. That's it's, exactly mm-hmm. right. It's uh, And then they don't move the car for seven days. What the hell do you have a car for? You know? Well, right. I mean, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I've yeah. known people who do that. It's strange, isn't it? It's, it's weird. It's uh, yeah. yeah, I was helping one neighbor the other day moving her car around and I was freaking out because I don't know the love that much around here and there's many signs everywhere and it's a big responsibility. And she was like, oh, I need your help, I need your help. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem like something I would want to do. No. Yeah, it's been like absolutely. two hours, three hours just yeah, like yeah. thinking about the car and moving it around. You're, you're stressed out. Sometimes it you is. can't it's, find it's parking. A, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I go out at night when I was, when I was with my... Uh, my first wife, and we would go out. My cousin used to play piano down at the Hotel Lexington. Well, we would go out and I'd be able to park the car. I'd take the car downtown. The doorman knew me at the Hotel Lex. He got he got $3. All right. $3. Good man. I came home, and we're at Cabrini Garages now, mm-hmm. you know, in, behind 900. Uh-huh. The guy with $3, he had me a spot. I'd come home 2 o'clock in the morning. He had one of the cars from the garage, zooped it into the garage. I parked. Yeah. So for six dollars, man, I was the man of the hour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great. Barry, what did your what did your folks do? What did your parents do? Well, my mom was mostly a homemaker, and uh, my dad had a retail a retail uh, women's shoe store on Fifty Seventh Street between Sixth and Seventh Avenue. And yeah, those days, it was it was nice. That's area. a nice area. That's, it was it's still was, a pretty it nice was area. a great area. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't roll in dough. It was nothing. But we had people come into the store. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of. Actually, Carol Channing used to come in when my mother, my dad had two or three salesmen back in the height of the war years, the World War Two, and he opened the store in 1937, 38. And uh, it's not what it is today. It was not, none of these uh, brand shoes like Jimmy Choo, or you, <laughs> you put a name on it and you get another thousand dollars a pop kind of thing. These were shoes manufactured in Brooklyn and Boston and then sent to a job or a middleman down on Duane Street. And then they would bring it up to you. You had the salesman come in, see, you know, two months before the season, three months before the season, show you what's hot for the season. And my dad was a pretty good, uh, pretty good judge of shoes. He wouldn't overbuy. There were many, there were four shoe stores on that block Mm. and many of them overbought and they just got stuck at the end of the season. That wasn't consignment. You bought 100 pair of shoes and sold 20. You were You're, stuck with 80 pair of shoes at the end of the year that were going nowhere. Right. 
and that was that was a key to success. But later on, as as business dwindled, my mom went down and helped my dad. Carol Channing was a big fan of my mom. She would come into the store and go, "Where's Rosie?" And she'd sit there like a Bronx, you know, and just just sit there and yak. And I thought, "Wow, okay." And uh, every now and then we had a couple of. Uh, Jane Mansfield came into the store. All right. Jane Mansfield came in. My dad looked at her. He said she looked like a disheveled blonde from Midwest. Oh, right. And she said to my father, and he, I don't know, they were making conversation. And uh, she said to my dad, she says, he called himself Mr. Bard. That was the name of the store, Bards, B-A-R-D-S. She said, Mr. Bard, in two years, I'm going to be the hottest name in Hollywood. <laughs> and I, obviously, she knew what she was talking about because she did become, she did become, unfortunately, untimely death, but uh, she did become a, a, a hot hottie. <laughs> How did she pass away? She got uh, killed in an auto accident. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, oh. she got smashed up. and They said, you know, I don't know if she was decapitated, but I didn't want to think Ooh, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't it's know. No, stories no stories mm-hmm. abound. Yeah, look that you up. Know. Yeah. I'm glad I wasn't there for a first-hand analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you got to see her in her prime and you have that great memory. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, she was, she, uh, she kind of knew. She was a bright lady, too. She mm. was, a, she, I think, had a, a very high IQ. Mm. And uh, she's Mariska Hargitay, you know, from Law and Order. That's mm. her mom. Oh, or, you know, uh, oh. Olivia, Olivia Benson. Yeah. That's, that's... Uh, that often happens. There's these these Hollywood families and there's... Oh, yeah. Once okay. you're in, you're in. You've got a few doors that open, I guess. Sure, so. I, yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the genetics don't hurt either. No, I don't know. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, why, uh, why did your father name his store Bart's? I'm not sure. I think, you know, I want to know, you know, it was kind of like Barry. I thought it was for me. At one point, I I was uh, I don't remember exactly what the story was, but uh, it was a nice time. It was it was a nice time down there. You know, you down you down from the uh, Carnegie Hall was on the corner of Seventh. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, the Russian Tea Room was always there, and the, oh, yeah. the woman, the owner of the Russian Tea Room, used to come in uh, to buy shoes. And I remember when she was telling my father about buying getting air rights, and I had no idea what the hell air rights were. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. build, and uh, I found out that you make a lot of money with that if you go down to 57th Street today. Yeah. And interestingly enough, my dad was offered, he was in partners for a while with my uh, uh, my uncle, his brother-in-law. His, uh, my dad's mother said, please take, take Sam into the business. He doesn't know, he's just out of the war. He doesn't know anything. And they got together, and the owner of 130 West 57th Street, which is a landmark building today. I think uh, there's certain windows, the way they put in uh, for artistic, uh, there was an artistic uh, bent to why the building was built that way. And the realtor people, Charles Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S. I know that name. They had a lot of real estate here. And the agent came to my father and said, Mr. Mr. Bard, why don't you buy the building? He says, we're property rich, but we're, we're dollar poor. And my father, who had just, you know, been through the depression kind of thing, and mm-hmm. you don't know where your next buck is coming from, and uh, he was very hesitant. I don't think, I, I think they would have funded him 
giving them a lot of funny, but I don't mm-hmm. know the whole. Yeah. I just know the story. That's one of those, yeah. ooh, yeah. the train went by. And yeah, maybe yeah, we should have yeah, caught that I train, mean, but maybe not. No, of course not. Yeah. Dad, I'd give up coffee for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> How much for the building? I, I don't no know. Idea. I don't <laughs> I know. But it, but it was, I think, I think the, the, the mortgage, the way they had laid it out, was it was... Uh, it was something that could have possibly be done, mm-hmm. but you know you lose your taste for gambling when you uh, you see people on the street begging for bread, you know, literally, and uh, or waiting on bread lines, and uh, hmm. so that will affect that will affect your uh, that depression hit that generation so oh my hard. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. My great aunt and great uncle were uh, they, they helped raise me in North Dakota, and uh-huh. uh, my my great uncle was uh, was in Korea, uh-huh. and we were talking about like farmers in North Dakota. And surviving the depression, right. and they had a different attitude. They had a garden in the back. Yeah, they yeah. had a, a freezer in the basement. Okay, just and and clocking the difference between them and my my parents. Yeah, is pretty striking. Oh god, you, yeah. you know that never leaves you. You see, I mean, I see pictures of it. I you know post depression, but when you see guys with hats, you know their 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 business hats and their suit, mm-hmm. and they're waiting on a bread line. There's something mm-hmm. so incongruous about. You know, they should be going into a bank and, you know, punching in and doing their nine to five. And here they are yeah. waiting to get some applesauce or bread or whatever the hell the, the dole was in those days. They should have started a podcast. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to I'm going to hit the restroom real quick, guys. Okay. Go on. Go on. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Jeez, I don't know what to say. I'm just listening to all your stories. I love this. That's what happens when I'm 30 years old or 40 years yeah, old. Yeah, no, no. And then I'm, my dad would, you know, my dad would, he'd sit down. Went and I had friends of mine come up, you know, come on, Barry, let's go out. My father was home. He'd want to sit and talk to us. When I was your age, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, mm-hmm. Jesus, Dad, not again, you know. Yeah. But we did this, we did that, yeah. Yes, Dad, yes, Dad. My friends were, yes, Mr. Dorn, you know, everybody's dutiful. But my dad, my dad, you know, he, the stories were from the heart, and you know, and uh, you know, made a lot of sense. It's the old story: the older you get, the smarter your parents become. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's the what's the thing do you remind them all of your father? That yeah. some kind of teaching or something that you know. No, stuck in, my dad. Stuck in look, my dad worked hard. I mean, mm-hmm. he, I, I used to hear him at night. You know, I'd go to bed, and I would hear him in the bedroom pacing. You know, walking, two o'clock in the morning, worried about the business and. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying, geez, I'd be better off being a salesman than, you know, instead of being a boss kind of thing. Hmm. But worried about what to do, what to buy, the overhead, the this, the that. And, you know, at one point, you know, I think my father wanted to uh, get a, I forget what kind of franchise. Uh, there were shoes that you would sell, like uh, nursemaid shoes or Red Cross shoes, and they would just stock your store for you. You didn't have to think. You just gotta you got it. find they the would nurses. Come in, they would stock the store. You didn't have to worry about style. The prices were set, and I think he was thinking, maybe you know, my dumb son should go into this business. <laughs> you don't have to think. And I said, I think the one thing I don't want to do is, is you know, be in a shoe business. He was always reminding me of what's his name. Uh, the guy that was on TV, the shoe oh, store, uh, Bundy. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, married with children. Yeah. He's a, and, uh, Al, Al Bundy, Al, Al Bundy, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just that I have a couple of things, but the, one of the things I do remember from my dad all the time is he told me one time when I was younger, 
maybe 15, 16, and he said, whenever you begin something, finish it. Uh-huh. And that stuck on me. Yeah. Whenever I started stu- yeah. to study something, I was just finishing it. No matter if I was going to work on it or, or if okay. I liked it or not, but I finished it. Interesting. And that kind of helped me a lot. Yeah. yeah. Because I never leave anything in the middle or something. Well, that's good. That's yeah. a good, that's a good, uh, yeah. good trait. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to, yeah. Finish what you started. 100%. No, no, that, that, that was it. That was it. Yeah. And so that's why I was asking yeah, yeah. you. Like, yeah. just, and I don't know. Is there anything like that that he told you and that stuck on you? Like, oh, I learned it from my dad so yeah, much. Yeah. Well, it sounds it sounds to me like uh, the business, maybe, mm-hmm. and it, it, and that's that's quite an opposite choice too to to grow up with a business person, yeah, and then yeah. to go into to teaching. Well, I, I did have, a, I mean, I don't want to hog all the time. No, not at all. No, I grew, up, I grew up where politics politics were very big mm. in the neighborhood. And I worked for an assemblyman for a while. And uh, two of my friends, Steve Gottlieb, who passed away, he became the assemblyman in uh, 1968, 69 to 73, 74. And then Denny Farrell, who just passed away. Denny and I were great friends. Denny became the longest, one of the longest sitting assemblymen in Albany. He was the head of Ways and Means Committee. He was a Democratic chairman. Uh, when he passed away, they dedicated the Riverside Park to Denny. Oh, wow. You know, on 145th. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Cuomo was there, and Cuomo would always say, my dad would not go to the bathroom without consulting Denny first. <laughs> Mario, he, and this is true, this is true. He would get on the phone, and, and Denny had this ability, and Denny didn't know what he wanted to do. We were working in a garage together, parking cars, you know, at Yeah, night. wow. And Denny just had this ability, and... Uh, the drive to not give up. There you go. And and uh, and the brains and the street smarts to know how to play the game right. Yeah. And he became very successful at it. And when when his his son Herman lauded him about uh, when they dedicated the park to him, he was still alive. He said, "My dad would always tell me one thing. He would stick to itiveness. That was the term he used. Stick to itiveness, like you say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stick with what you're doing. Okay. And don't yeah. abandon it. And uh, you will succeed." And so, you know, Herman, Herman Jr. uses this term quite often. And it did, it did help. It did help very much. You know, then he became a very successful politician. What does an assemblyman do? (laughs) You know, you got another three hours? I can tell you nothing. They sit there, they collect money, they check out the Albany crowd. I mean, it's not the same austere body like Congress is anymore. I grew up with, you know, the Assembly and the State Senate, you know, where these people, it just seemed it was a little more governmental, if you will. I, again, liking it to the U.S. Senate and, and the United House of Rep. I mean, you see what goes on now. Oh, so. please. So on, on a state level, when I was up there, there was a lot of respect. There was a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, you know, socially and and uh, which is not for a general podcast. I will, I'll share <laughs> but, it with you later in yeah, the bar. All right, but, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, that's what that's what they all say is it's the uh, for people who are into politics, it's better than sex. Uh, oh that's well, they, and, they and love it. They it's in and, and then you know they work till June. They're there. They're there three days a week. Right. Because they would come home. You know, normally Thursday was a club day. He would come home to the political club. Mm-hmm. And Thursday, he would go over to the political club. 
Monday and Thursday were usually a Democrat, Republican, uh, you know, you'd go up there with your jury duty or your, your complaints about the landlord or the rent and, uh, but it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And, and, uh, and you went to school with this guy? You grew up with this guy? Denny and I played, yeah. Steve and I, Steve. And I first worked for the some, first assembly I, men I worked for was Augie Maresca. What that was is I would, I would help out in the club or give out leaflets. So there was always this thing about you're on the payroll. You know, it was, it was, uh, you'd go up to Albany, you'd do a couple of days up there. And for the whole session, I got $750, you know. <laughs> but you're traveling back and forth. I, well, I had to go, yeah, but it was connected. fun. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I was teaching at that point. Had I not been teaching uh, with, the, with the city. Sorry, just watch the hand over here. Oh, yeah, sorry, I, sorry. I, uh, yeah. that would have counted towards my pension. If I was working at my father's oh, store, right. but the fact that I was working at a city job, it, it was like double dipping. Oh, I and see. And you couldn't do it. Like after I finished teaching, I, I started working. Steve Gottlieb then became the Supreme Court judge. Uh-huh. And then he got me a job with Steve. The, the, the New York, in, New York in, Supreme in Queens, Court. Queens Supreme Court. Got it. Yeah, but yeah. there again, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't collect the pension. Uh-huh. I'd have to give up my teacher's pension. I see. So you were doing, were you doing this concurrently with teaching? You no, were teaching and I, doing no, this? I was, I was gotcha. already retired. Gotcha. What, when I was in the assembly, it was mm-hmm. concurrent with teaching. I see. So I was not allowed to claim those years. Yeah. It was like, you know. It wasn't the money, but it would have been a couple of extra years on my salary. That would have been a cool thing. That doesn't hurt, does it? No, not at all. Not Let's at talk all. about teaching what, uh, briefly. Like, what's your? I know you're you, often at the at the bar. You'll talk about affection for your students, and you'll bump into your students, and they've grown. Not so and, much anymore, but no? <laughs> I mean, I just I, I bump into students now. A lot of them used to work down at medical center. And uh, oh, Mr. Lord, I'm retiring. My kid, my my kid's married and got three kids. Uh, so you'll pardon me. Go, oh shit, <laughs> you know. And I'll go, oh my gosh, you know, that's right. Go, yeah, I had you in 1961, 62. And wow, I, I I was teaching. I started teaching very briefly because it was too much of a trip. At Washington Irving High School, which was all girls. At first, uh, on uh, Irving Place down near, uh, you know, where Con Ed offices. And hell, I looked like I was 12 years old. Some of the girls looked older than me. And here I am trying to teach them sexual reproduction of, <laughs> of plants and animals. And I go, this ain't going to work. <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> this Exit is, stage left. Yeah, it was a little bit. <laughs> I got teachers in my family. My mother was a teacher, and my and my stepfather still works on the reservation. My brother tried it for a couple of years, but I don't think it was for him. Yeah, yeah my father was a teacher, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Psychotherapy, well, psych- psychiatry. Oh, psychiatry. Yeah. Psychology. Psych- yeah, no psychiatry. Psychiatry. Um, you have to have an. I don't MD. remember exactly what he was teaching at the moment. I was such yeah. a kid. I remember a couple of stuff, but they work on the same university all of their life as, as, oh. as doctors at the medical. They're, student center. They're yeah. psychoanalysts, correct? They're psychoanalysts. Yeah, yeah. psychiatry is, they're, you have to have an MD to be a psychiatrist. Yeah, they're yeah. doctors, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts. Yeah, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Both of them. Smart people. <laughs> yeah, one of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, gentlemen, we got some more time. I, I yeah. wanted to sort of go back down memory lane a little bit, Barry, and <laughs> talk about the music from the 50s in, in, you know, in mm. New York. Yeah. What do you remember about music? Well... I was a big, <laughs> I was a big jazz fan. I loved piano. I played piano. I fairly, <laughs> but I was a great. Uh, I loved Errol Garner, Art Tatum, and uh, 
the jazz band. I was a little late for the big band. I did hear kind of the end of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it was interesting. In the 50s, though, before the, uh, before the Beatles in 64, we did a lot of, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of vocals, you know, to, uh, Joni James and uh, Joe Stafford and uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Torme, and, and a lot of the vocals. And then rock and roll came in, you know, with the the uh, era of the Platters, the Penguins, and hmm. you know, and all of that slow music that you could dance with very close with your girlfriend. <laughs> right. And the only thing was, we only had seventy-eight records, so as soon as the song stopped, the whole mood was shattered in about two and a half minutes. And I thought the greatest invention was when the forty-five records came in. And you could play two songs on one, and so you had at least almost seven or eight minutes, you know. In the closet, yeah. you could neck a little longer. Yeah, hold the mood another five so minutes. bring the 45. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we loved That's the music. Awesome. We loved, we loved the music. We had jukeboxes. The candy stores all had jukeboxes. The, uh, uh, I mean, they, the platters came in. The Temptations were a little later. But that whole rock wow. and roll thing was 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 wonderful. Yeah, how do you how do you Sam the man Taylor? How did that affect you? Like how did it? Or everybody? Oh, around, we all know. We going. we just loved the music. I yeah, mean, yeah. It just seemed like that whole group of people were were into it, and uh, a lot of a lot of the movies. I mean, we were corny with the you know the the MGM musicals, and like I would tell you, Seven Brides. Well, that was later on, or the Doris Day movies that they were just. You know, showing because she just passed away, and uh, Secret Love, and they all became big hits. And uh, Joni James, Joni James was one of these, uh, her voice would make you melt. Mm. And so we went out to see her when we were saving our pennies, and we went out to the Brooklyn Paramount that used to stage these shows. Uh, Alan Freed, Alan Freed had the rock and roll stuff, and he was on the, uh, he would play all of these uh rock and roll songs, but we ran out to see Joni James at the Brooklyn Paramount and skull, ran into the first row. And then as the stage started to ascend, Joni James was like four and a half stories above my head, and all I got to see was her nostrils. So it was, we spent the day looking up. Oh, it was like, holy cow, no one told me the stage was going to go up, you know. Oh, so you're, 30 feet in the air. You're buying these first row yeah, tickets, so they get, oh, We, we learned quickly not to do that. But funny, my, uh, my wife, Maura, took me a few years ago. She was doing a, uh, oh, where the hell was she, Lincoln Center or something. And uh, she got on the stage and did live. She was stuck in the elevator if something happened there. <laughs> But when she got when she got on stage, it it was it was awful. She could, oh, no. it was I felt so bad. Oh no! And this sweet voice. I mean, see her fifty years later, mm. and uh, you. It was sad. It was just, you know, it was yeah. sad. To, I mean, sometimes but, you know, sometimes a band. I mean, like Tony Bennett. Tony yeah. Bennett, God bless him. I mean, this guy. Yeah. still got it. This guy is unbelievable, oh, yeah. you know. I think But, he's getting better. Yeah, there's no, there, <laughs> there's not too many Tony Bennett's, you know, Definitely. in the 90s. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's the reality of, like you say, the reality yeah. of age. Yeah. Different voices, too. You know, Tony Bennett's voice is one of those that you can just oh, yeah. oh, age yeah. We well. Oh, yeah. It's like Frank Sinatra. They age well. Yeah. But it comes to, I don't know, an opera singer. It depends also. Yeah. But because Pavarotti was amazing when he was older. Yeah, my so. wife, my wife, Amora, yeah. she went to Eastman uh, Music School near U of R. 
So she got a very good music education, but she's also 20 years my junior. So when I first started to meet her, and I said, "You ever hear this?" Were you teaching her biology? Uh, no, 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 no. I was. I wasn't <laughs> even. I was. I had just gone through a divorce. I was, okay, I, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but she, you know, never heard Billy Holiday. Never oh. heard Dinah Washington. Never heard. She was a military brat. She was in the Air Force. Her dad was an Air Force colonel, so she was in Germany, in Omaha. Oh yeah. And of course, uh, was not familiar with Mel Torme. And when she would hear it. She would appreciate. Oh my God! Oh my God! You know, that's beautiful. That's I, I. I never heard stuff like that. And you know, I said half of them are in the bag when they're doing this. You know, <laughs> but, you know, it gives it. it you know, it, it's just. Uh, but she became a big fan, and, and she was always appreciative of of, of learning and just uh, hearing. Uh, wow, this is great music. So it was nice in a way. I was, you know, teaching her something she had never heard. And, and uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. But the music, the music was always a big part of your life. I mean, you know, you'd go out, you know, we had little club rooms or something, and the slow dancing was a must, you know. And every time <laughs> somebody dancing. play a Lindy, you know, and you, you start running around, and, and then the twist came in, and everybody was going downtown, and I could never stand that. You go to a club, everybody's smoking. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. the lights that you know the damn lights are going around yeah and I had a couple of drinks already sure and I said the last thing I want to do is be here you know it was just it was not my scene at all yeah you know? I've never been into clubs that much because of the noise I, oh, I, don't, I just can't oh, handle it I prefer yeah. a bar where you can talk and hear yeah, some exactly, music yeah. exactly definitely that's exactly yeah, right yeah. and now was was the twist was that scandalous no, the no, twist just no. became it was Chubby Checker. Yeah, Chubby mm -hmm. Checker, and everybody just—I mean, it was it a just, craze. It just made a craze, and and it was easy to do, mm. like a merengue. You know, you want yeah, you, yeah. you're trying to do a double mambo is kind of hard. Yeah, yeah, merengue. But a merengue, you know, <laughs> one foot, two foot. You yeah, know, yeah. even even a loaf like me can do that. <laughs> you know, but uh, the twist became a, a you know easy to do. Everybody was doing it, and. Uh, yeah. What was your favorite band on that rock and roll? Oh explosion? God, I don't even remember anymore. We would go to we would go to Birdland. Ah, oh, we would go to Birdland great. when it was on Fifty Second and Broadway, mm -hmm. and Birdland was you could go in for fifty cents, and they had like these little marble tiers where you would sit like you were sitting on a and and sit there and you hear Count Basie or Billy Holiday or and and if you had money you could sit at the tables. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what's his name? Chet Baker. And, oh, you know, wow, yeah. Oh, my God, Oof. I love Chet Baker. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Miles Davis. I mean, they were Oof. they were kind of at each other a little bit. They were yeah. uh, they were both trumpet, and they... Uh, Miles didn't think anybody could, you know, play. And he's right. I mean, he had an ego, and he had every right to have it. What street was it, Berlin? 52nd Broadway. 52nd, okay. And, and uh, I tell you, he went in for 50 cents. He yeah. had a 50-cent beer because... Yeah. It was a cover charge. Yeah. So for a buck, you were sitting in these places. Watching Miles and, Davis. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, Davis and uh, Basie was there a lot. And I don't remember how many times I'd go there. But, hmm. you know, there was a lot. There were a lot of clubs. When my mom and dad used to go out on a Saturday night, and I still had a babysitter. I was still that young. But they would come home with these swizzle sticks, you know, the little... Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the phony ones, you know, with the little red ball on the uh -huh, top. Uh -huh, yeah. And they were... They were Eight, nine clubs, ten clubs, Copacabana, yeah. uh, the Latin Quarter, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leon and Eddie's and Toff and Eddie and all these clubs. And uh, 
I kind of missed that. I mean, that was that was a little, mm. little you know, older than you know, uh, than my time. But uh, it was nice. It was nice, kind of living through that and hearing that too. Talk a little more <laughs> about Miles Davis. I know you have some stories, if I'm not mistaken. No, not, no, too much. not with Miles. Not Miles. There, there are some old no. jazz stories that you've told me before. But seeing Miles oh. Davis would be something. Oh that my, yeah, I uh, Chet Baker. I love yeah. Chet Baker. Uh, I was going to go. My hero was Errol Garner. I loved Errol Garner, piano. And Errol, Errol lived around 57th Street. And periodically, I would bump into him at the Manufacturer Hanover Bank, where my dad would put the deposit. And the manufacturer Manny Hanny was, and he would be in there. And I loved talking to him. I mean, he was such a. I mean, what a talent, but these guys have no ego. Hmm. I find I find boxes and jazz pianists, some jazz people, they're just they're glad to talk to you. They're not they're, they're not aloof hmm. and you know, like who the hell are you to talk to me, you know? And well thank you so much for talking to me and thank you. And I mean I went to the auto, we used to have the horn and heart at automat there. Uh, you know where you put the nickel in the slots and, and you'd get your sandwich out of out of the uh, out of the windows <laughs> And it was very crowded on 57th one day, and I'm, they had a balcony upstairs. You had a table, and someone sat down. And, you know, was, everybody could sit at any table. And it was very packed. Somebody sat down and said, you mind if I sit at your table? And, no, of course not. It was Duke Ellington. I'm going, you want the whole table, Mr. Ellington? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, humble, you know, do you mind? I said, do I mind? I mean, I... I didn't know what to say to him, you know, I said, God, thank you, you know, just thank you for being you. And uh, Billy Strayhorn, of course, who played a lot, you know, composed a lot with him. Mm. But uh, Errol Garner I used to like to see, and they had in Central Park for a long while in the summer, they had outdoor concerts where Walman, uh, Walman Rink is now, the ice skating rink. Yeah. And they had f free concerts in the... 50s and 60s and the acoustics were not that great but you got there I saw I saw Art Tatum I saw Garner Oscar Peterson another great jazz pianist and when Billie Holiday came out they had to bring out a floor mic because she couldn't stand they, she had to hold hold on to the stem of the mic so she could steady herself I mean everybody else they had I had well you, you know what audio and video is much more than I do they had the overhead for for the audio for sure. the outdoor, but she needed she needed a she needed because a she was in the, in the bag. Or? Yeah. Oh yeah. She oh. either that yeah, or yeah. you know she just was. But uh, yeah, God, something else. But it was worth every minute. Every minute. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was hitting the notes. Yeah. And one of my other favorite singers was Chris Connor. Chris Connor was his heavy duty jazz that husky voice which I love. And Maura always yells at me because she says, I'm a, I'm a damn soprano and you hate my voice and you love Julie, you know, uh, Chris Connor or, or uh, you know, um, Peggy Lowe, whatever. And we went to see Chris Connor one night years ago and I was so happy. Nobody was in the audience. Nobody was there. Mm. And I felt, you know, after the show was over, she was sitting at the bar by herself. Mm. And I should bring you some of the albums one day, because somebody, yeah. I think Ben brought the album in a couple of weeks ago. I told him about Chris Connor, and he was playing. I said, "What a voice!" Hmm. And I said, "Chris, I'm so sorry." I said, "Can I buy you a drink or something?" She says, "I'd love it, but I'm, I'm not up to it." She says, "I said they don't know what they were missing." 
I said, you know, you you're just great. Mm. But it was it was terrible, you know. It's tough how the the brakes go, isn't it? Sometimes you're so, huge, and so, sometimes yeah. the thing passes you by, and all yeah, the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to the London house when we went we went cross cross country, city slicker boys. We were going 1957 cross country, and we had suits with us. And one of the reasons I had a suit was Errol Garner was at the London house in Chicago, and one of the only stipulation I had, let's go. Fine. We get to Cleveland. I park the car. I come down in the morning. All the suits are gone. Oh, no. They, they schmuck us. You know, what do we know? We were in the worst part of Cleveland. Oh, We hung the suits all in the back of the car. Oh, no. And <laughs> the only thing that made me laugh was my friend Maurice was there. Maurice became executive producer of 60 Minutes. Oh, he, that's quite he, a job. Yeah. He had the ugliest suit you could have ever seen. <laughs> it was so ugly. I, you know, I spoke at his funeral. I said he would have never made a truck driver and he would have never made a, you know, a, a fashion designer. Right. But he had this great... They left the suit. The suit was so freaking ugly <laughs> that they, they, took, they left the suit. And I was hysterical. I couldn't, I couldn't see Earl Garner, which made me terrible. But every time I looked at this freaking suit... <laughs> you cracked up. Describe it. Did it have it, color? It's color? beyond the script. <laughs> it's, it's, we, it was, it was multicolored, patchwork, red, green. It, it, oh. it would not have even made a rug in a doghouse. Oh, no. I think we buried it somewhere along Route 66 at one point. <laughs> and I think probably a failed casino must have grown from it. <laughs> Well, Barry, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Get this, the podcast about things people love. I I have a show title for this. I think this episode, if you approve, Barry, is going to be called Radio Kids. Okay. You like that? Yeah, sure. I like the other phrase you use there, slow... What do you say when you're referring about the dancing? Oh, yeah, the slow, yeah. yeah. Slow dancing? Slow slow dancing. We just said something exactly. The, we'll have to listen back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I like that part. Yeah. Well, anyway. That was no dance. You would get on a floor with somebody <laughs> and you just stand there. You know? Right. <laughs> feet would move an inch. Or bring the 45. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Radio Kids. All right. Thanks again for coming on. I hope uh, you're going to do it again. Pleasure, Thanks so pleasure. much, Barry. Thank you for having Barry me. Barry Dorn. <laughs> cool.